Wonderful. Turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be reading there in just a moment. Um, it's good to be back with you uh, this morning. I was had the privilege this week of being in Atlanta, Georgia for what's called the G3 conference, uh, Glory, Grace, and Gospel, or the three Gs. And uh, the weather there was beautiful, um, but even before I left here, at least in the mornings, it was starting to get really nice. And uh, it's beautiful to get up and be able to put the windows down in the morning as you head out. I know it still gets hot uh, during the day, but it's nice to have those uh, cooler mornings. And, and we anticipate this time of year that there's more good weather coming, right? So sometime between now and maybe the middle of November, uh, that big break comes and we have all this nice cooler uh, weather that comes down uh, from the north. But when that cooler weather comes down from the north, it attracts something else, doesn't it? That's right, it attracts, it attracts more people uh, that begin coming down. And my goodness, um, the people just keep coming, don't they? Uh, the people uh, keep coming. And before we bemoan that fact, okay, because there are time, it's easy to, to bemoan that, most of us in this room... Uh, moved here from someplace else at some point, right? And so every now and then, I'll hear somebody say, I wish they just wouldn't let anybody else in, right? Well, let me just ask you this. What if they would have said that the year before you came here, right? No, we're grateful. We want people uh, to come to Florida. I want people to come to Florida. They come here for the beautiful weather. Uh, They come here for the nice beaches. They come here for the retirement feel, restaurants, all those nice things. They just keep flocking our way. And we're not talking just about snowbirds. We're talking about people moving here, permanent residents moving to Sarasota. I and my family have lived here now about seven and a half years. Do you know that in roughly about that same time frame, uh, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, uh, the population of Sarasota County has increased by over 50,000 people. 50,000. Those are people who live here year-round. New people. We're not talking about the 96,000 that come down every year that we call snowbirds. I'm talking about there are 50,000 more permanent residents in our county alone. No wonder the U.S. News and World Report says that Sarasota is now the second fastest growing city in all of the United States. That is 50,000 more people on our roads. That's 50,000 more people in our stores, in their restaurants. And we can feel it, can't we? They're everywhere. But listen to me. That's also 50,000 more souls. Most of which are hopelessly lost, dead in their sin, no knowledge of Jesus, trapped in their selfish desires, and they're just here for the beer and sunshine. It's a real opportunity for us. It's a wonderful opportunity for us, an opportunity to reach into a dark world with the good news of Jesus. But listen, I'm going to tell you something. 
before that can happen, before God can use us to reach into that dark world, he wants to be purifying us. He wants to be preparing us. He wants to be changing and growing us. He wants us to be living holy lives. God doesn't reach people with lukewarm Christians. He reaches the lost with Christians who are fire hot for him. That's who he uses to reach into the world. God wants a bride, and we are his bride. God wants a bride that is without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. He tells us that in Ephesians chapter 5. Okay? And so, as God desires to send us to the 50,000 people who are coming here, plus the 380,000 that were already here before the 50 showed up, as he's getting us ready to go to them, he is also purifying us. He wants us to worship him in holiness. He wants us to worship him alone. He wants us to be living obedient lives for Jesus so that when we go to this lost world, we can go and we can present a real Jesus who makes real impact. And here is what I've watched God doing at Bethel over the last number of years. God is preparing us and purifying us. How do I know that? Because God is exposing in us some deep-seated issues that have held us back because we were not dealing with our own junk And consequently, consequently, we weren't able to deal with the junk of the world because we were dealing with our own. How do I know that God is doing this? Because I get to sit on the front lines of intensive discipleship, and I get to talk with people about what's going on in their lives, and I get to meet with people, and I want to tell you something. These people are doing great. People are coming everywhere, and they're identifying sin issues in their life. They're identifying heart motives. They're identifying behavioral patterns. And they're saying, this is keeping me from loving Christ fully. And this needs to be gone out of my life. And they're repenting. And they're changing. And they're growing. And I'm just sitting back and I'm watching this. And I'm asking the question, God, why do these issues just keep popping up more and more and more? Why are people confessing more? What is going on? And it's almost like God has been whispering in my ear because I'm preparing Bethel for something big. I'm getting you ready because I'm sending 50,000 people your way. You need to be ready. You need to be pure. You need to be holy. You need to be living for me. Before I can use you to reach them, you're not going to be perfect. But before I can use you, you need to have all this junk gone. You need to be a holy people, a pure people. And so I just, thank you, I guess. Thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, for, thank you for people who are willing to repent. Thank you for people who are willing to grow and change and confess. Thank you for all of that. I am convinced God is up to something Amazing. I don't know what that is yet. I don't know what that looks like. 
I don't want to try to invent something new. All I want for Bethel is for us to come along and say, God, whatever you're doing, just let us be a part. Please let us be a part of that. And God says, okay, if you want to be a part of that, then I'm going to purify you. Which brings me to the beauty of this text this morning out of Luke chapter 1. And maybe you've read it, if you look at it starting in verse 67, maybe you've read it ahead a little bit and you think, well, what in the world does this little song from John the Baptist's dad have anything to do with what you've just been talking about? Well, let me read it and explain why I think the two are connected. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 67. And his father, this is John the Baptist's father, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, exactly what Isaiah said earlier, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let me pray again. God, this prophecy of Zechariah is so beautiful, so precious. It speaks of your son who you were sending into the world. Help us to take this and just engulf it in our soul, just to absorb it to the point where we just want nothing else but to live out what Zechariah prophesies here. Help us to want your son Jesus so desperately that everything else in this world pales in comparison to what you have to offer through him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me catch you up a little bit on the story if you haven't been with us for the last few weeks. Um, We've been talking about John the Baptist, and nine months before this particular story happened, uh, John's father, Zechariah, had been told, hey, you're going to have a son. Uh, He didn't believe it uh, because he was very old. His wife was very old. And so the angel said, well, you're not going to be able to speak then until the son is born. And so Zechariah has been waiting now for nine months uh, as Elizabeth bore the pregnancy of their son, John the Baptist. Uh, In God's sovereignty, he he held off on giving them a child until this point. And so when John was born, which we looked at last week, all the neighbors and the relatives are there and they think it'd be really nice if this family, these parents named the son after their father, Zachariah, because of all the 
notoriety of what's happened in his life, and, and Zechariah refuses, and so does Elizabeth. And Zechariah writes on the writing tablet, he says, his name is John. And as soon as he wrote that, uh, his mouth was opened. Uh, the, the words of Gabriel were true. His mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, and according to verse 64, it says, Zechariah spoke, blessing God. Well, the blessing is what we just read this morning in our text. All right, so that's 67, actually 68 down to verse 79. That's the blessing of how Zechariah then blesses God. I've titled this sermon this morning, Prepared Through Salvation. And Zechariah's blessing is laid out in three parts, all three of which center around this idea of salvation. The three parts that we'll look at is, number one, he starts off with a praise for salvation. Then he talks about the purpose of salvation. And then finally, he turns his attention specifically to his son, and he talks about the profit of that salvation. So we'll look at him in those orders, uh, in that order. But first, I want you to notice that. Look at verse 67. Zechariah, it says, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. This is a spirit-inspired utterance. These aren't just Zechariah's own words. These are words that have come through a divine source, the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of Zechariah, both for those original hearers and now written down for our edification as well. What's amazing about that, this, this prophecy of Zechariah, is this is the first prophecy that the children of Israel have heard in over four hundred years. At the conclusion of the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, the, the canon of the Old Testament closed, and God has been silent now for 400 years. And so this is a big deal. When Zechariah prophesies, this is the first one, God is speaking again, this time through Zechariah. And what makes it an even bigger deal, not just that he's prophesying, but what makes it a bigger deal is that the prophecy of Zechariah in these verses specifically states that after nearly 2,000 years of hoping waiting, anticipating, watching for a Messiah, Zechariah says, it's here. All of those prophets of old have been waiting. We get to see it right here. This is a big deal. He's putting the Jewish nation on alert that within his son's lifetime, the Messiah would be on stage. So he can't help but start off with a praise to God for salvation. Look at verse 68. Blessed, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now when you and I read the word visit uh, in good Mennonite tradition, when we go visit somebody, uh, it means we go to their house and we have pie and coffee. Just talk. It was a nice visit. Okay, uh, that's not how the word is used in the Bible. Uh, the word "visit" in the Bible means to come to the aid of, or to assist someone, to help 
someone. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 25, verse 36, when he says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. It wasn't just that you came and said hi. It's that you came to my aid. You assisted me in my sickness. It's the same word Jesus used that Zechariah is using here to talk about God's salvation. You and I needed God. We were broken. We were without hope. We were downtrodden. And God came and he visited us. He came to our aid. He rescued us. He redeemed us. That means he freed us by paying a price. He released us like a prisoner. He brought deliverance to us. And further, verse 69 says, he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Well, what is a horn of salvation? We don't usually talk in in those kinds of words. Well, a horn, as you might suspect, is a symbol of strength. Right? So if you think about, for example, uh, cattle, uh, the strength of the bull is in his horn. Right? Uh, my grandpa had a small farm back in Indiana, and as a kid, I used to love going to grandpa's farm, and he had chickens and horses, and, and he had cattle. And if the cattle were all gathered together somewhere near the fence, you could climb over the fence, uh, and, and you could get the attention of the cows there, the female cattle, and... and the females would just kind of stare at you and they sort of put their heads down. They're looking at you real intent. And if you kind of take a step toward them, they take a step back and you take another step and they take a step back. And if you clap your hands real loud and wave, they just, they spook and they, they turn and they run and they turn around and they look at you again. And we laughed and we laughed. Oh, so much fun. But if you see the bull coming, you don't laugh anymore because the bull is not entertained by those kind of antics and the bull will not turn and run. He'll charge towards you, Right? You don't want one of those horns coming up your backside because that's going to be excruciating, uh, excruciatingly painful. So when the bull comes toward you and you see the strength of that horn, you better be skedaddling back over the fence. Get out of there, right? This is what Zechariah is trying to communicate to us here when he talks about the horn of salvation. He says, God has raised up a horn of salvation, a strong and mighty savior, a mighty redeemer. And God is going to use that mighty person to save his people. It's a horn strength of salvation to be saved, to be rescued. Now it's fascinating to me, if you look at the verbs in verses 68 and 69, they're all in the past tense. Notice that. All in the past tense. He has visited me. He has redeemed us. He has raised up. Of course, he's talking here about the Messiah. But what's interesting is the Messiah has not yet been born. He's still inside Mary's womb, but he hasn't even been born yet. And yet Zechariah is so confident of God's accomplishments that he talks about them as though they've already occurred. God has visited us. He has redeemed us. He has raised up his horn of salvation. Remember, he's speaking here under the inspiration of the Spirit. 
And as he thinks about all of those holy prophets of old, verse 70, he thinks about guys like Moses, who said there's a greater prophet coming. He thinks about guys like David, who's promised to have a a king on the throne forever. He thinks about Isaiah, who's prophesied comfort for his people. He thinks about Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, Malachi, all these prophets from the Old Testament all kept saying the exact same thing. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. He's on his way. Watch for him. He's coming. He's going to make his appearance. And when Zechariah thinks about all of that, he just erupts in praise. He says, can you believe it? In our lifetime, he's here. What an amazing God. Salvation has arrived. And Zechariah says, you want to know what the purpose of that salvation is? Well, look in verse 71. He says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Now, that could be interpreted as Zechariah and Israel's geopolitical enemies. Remember, they're under Roman occupation right now. They despise the Romans. The Romans are very uh, oppressive, and and they hated the Roman occupation. Uh, He could have been talking about that, but I think he's actually talking about something much deeper than just freedom from external forces. Glance over to verse 77, and Zechariah tells us what kind of salvation he has in mind. Verse 77, he says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of, of their sins. That's the salvation he has in mind. The forgiveness of their sins. Zechariah in verse 71 is referring not to natural and political enemies, but is referring to spiritual enemies. He's rightly identifying the fact that Satan and the world stand against God's people. They hate us. And by the way, that is still true today. Satan in the world hate God's people. And they want to trip us up spiritually. They want to get us to sin against a holy and righteous God. Satan knows he cannot win the war against God. And so he says, well, I'll take second best then. I'll just take as many people with me as I can into hell. That's at least a small victory in Satan's mind. So Zechariah says, this salvation is coming to us to save us from our sin. Now, that little statement is going to become a real stumbling block for the Jews. They're not going to take too kindly to this because they thought they were already okay with God. Jews in in this time didn't think that they need spiritual saving. They they already had God. They, they, They needed saving from Rome's corruption and Rome's taxation. And later, when John the Baptist comes on the scene... And, in fact, later than that, when Jesus comes on the scene and both John and Jesus begin to preach a message of repentance, that simply does not make sense to a Jew. They follow their father Abraham. That's all they need. They they follow him. They follow the law. They're part of the covenant people. Why in the world would I need to repent, a Jew might ask. And yet that's precisely what Zechariah is hinting at here. They need, and you and I need, the exact same thing. We need to be delivered from the hand of our enemy, Satan, 
and the domain of his darkness. And here's the truth of the matter. Before we know Christ, we're stuck. We're in darkness. We live for our own pleasure. We live for our own self-centeredness. We indulge in the things that make us feel good. And for that, we deserve God's punishment. It has been asked, when you are saved, from what are you saved? Well, the Bible's answer to that is, you are saved from God. You are saved from the wrath of God toward an unrighteous people. You are saved from the right and just punishment of God toward anyone who would defy him in thought, action, attitude. And until we are rescued, and unless we are rescued, we are doomed to suffer our own punishment in a place called hell forever. So, Zechariah is coming along saying, God has sent a a deliverer to give us salvation, forgiveness, of our sin. Now, let me ask you something. Does God give you salvation simply so you can escape hell? Is your salvation just a matter of fire insurance? I want to tell you something, and this is a bold statement. If that is all your salvation is, you are not saved. If your salvation is just fire insurance to keep you out of hell, you are not saved because you don't understand what the gospel is about. It is that, but it's far more than that. Look at the purpose of salvation at the end of verse 74 and end of verse 75. Look what Zechariah says. Why are we saved? That we might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Listen to me. When you are saved from something, you are also saved for something. When you're saved from something, you are also saved for something, primarily and namely, to serve God forever in holiness and righteousness. And I get to watch this from a front seat row at Bethel. God is saving people in our church from pornography. He is saving people in our church from anger. He's saving people in our church from depression and gossip and bitterness and lying and backbiting. And as I sit across from people week after week, I am blown away by the goodness of God in taking lives that are broken and turning them. And he's not just saving them from that sin. Now he's taking these exact same people and he's saying, now I want you to serve me in holiness and righteousness. And I'm watching these people begin to serve God in a whole new way. Love God in a whole new way. A life and a heart that's dedicated toward God. And they're not just serving God. They begin serving other people. And they begin showing other people how to do this and how to help others along the way. God is exposing sin in the life of people in our church 
with the singular purpose of creating a holy and righteous bride. And I get to watch it, and it's amazing. And when our sin gets exposed, it hurts, right? You know what that's like. When our sin gets exposed, it hurts. Nobody likes to be found out. But we can rejoice in one sense when that does happen because we know that when it's confessed and repented of, then that person who was once walking as a slave to sin can now begin walking as a slave to righteousness. God can use a person like that. And maybe you're sitting in this room this morning and you are battling some sin in your life. And maybe you're sitting here and you have never told another person about your sin that you're struggling with and it is eating you up inside. God wants you to know more than anything else that he wants you to serve him without fear and maybe you're sitting here right now and you are scared to death. Because if I tell somebody that sin, they're never going to want to have anything to do with me. They're never going to believe me. They're never going to understand. They're going to reject me. Can I just tell you something? That is the lie of Satan in your ear. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, There is no temptation that's overtaking you except what is common to man. You are not the first person who's faced the temptation to that sin. You might think you are, and Satan would like to make you think you are, and Satan would like to keep you trapped there so that you never open your mouth to anybody about that one, especially not to God. I want to tell you something. Millions of people, millions have gone ahead of you and faced the same temptation that you're facing right now. And God has given them grace. And the verse goes on to say, God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with every temptation, he will give you a way of escape so that you may stand up or that you may endure it. I just want to encourage you this morning. God is offering you forgiveness for wherever you're failing. Do you believe that? Because that's what Zechariah is prophesying here. That's what he said Jesus is coming to do. So that you might live without fear, holy and righteous, serving God. He finishes out this little blessing, this benediction, in verse 76, and he turns his attention to his very own son, John, this prophet of salvation. And he says, you child, I just love this. I just imagine he's holding this little boy in his arms. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. I love the fact that even though Zechariah is holding in his arms his own miracle son, he says this son is going to be overshadowed by the preeminence of another son to be born. This son of mine, while special, his role is just to prepare the one for which he won't be worthy to tie his sandals. Jesus is coming. This son of mine, 
is the prophet of the Most High. The one who's coming is the son of the Most High. Zechariah has the right perspective. But this prophet that he's holding, he has a role. And it is to go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And verse 77 says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus is coming. And Jesus is going to have the ability to forgive people of of their sins, which is the greatest need of every person who's ever lived. Your greatest need is what? Well, I'd like to have a really nice lunch today. I'd like to have a really big house. No, no. Your greatest need in all of time is your forgiveness of sin. That's your greatest need. And if you have that one, you have need for nothing else. You have wants for a lot of things, but you have need for nothing else. Because everything else, minus Jesus, you're left with nothing. But if you have Jesus plus nothing else, you have everything. God can offer you forgiveness for your sin because Jesus paid the penalty for it. The son who's coming paid the penalty. Jesus took every lashing on his back for you. He took every nail jammed into his wrists and feet for you. He took every disgusting wad of human spit to his face for you. He took every thorn jammed deeply into his, the flesh of his skull for you. He did all of that for you. And when he hung on the cross, he took every drop of the cup of God's wrath for you. Every bit was on him for you. And now he comes to you and he says, I'm here to offer you forgiveness. Why can he do that? Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. You don't serve a tyrant. You don't serve a dispassionate, cold, sterile God. You serve a tender and merciful Savior. You didn't deserve it. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You couldn't trade enough in order to get God's mercy. You were given his forgiveness just because he wanted to give it to you. He is a merciful, compassionate God. And if you will take what he is offering to you from his hands, his grace, his forgiveness, the righteousness of Christ, you can have several things. Zechariah says in verse 79, you can have light instead of darkness. You can have peace instead of chaos. Peace with God is something you can never buy with money. It's a free gift, and oh, how good it is. Zechariah's prophecy is so amazing because it highlights the beauty of salvation. You need that. I need that. Every single person needs that. And listen, God has a mission for us. He wants us to take this message of salvation to 50,000 new people moving here. He wants us to take that same message of of salvation to the now over 430,000 people that live all around us in this county. We cannot be content with just the people who are sitting around us right now. We have to be willing to go. 
We have to be willing to take this same message. He's purifying us. He's getting us ready. He's causing us to grow in holiness and righteousness. And then he's saying, go. Go into all the world. Go into Sarasota. Go downtown. Go into the suburbs. Go out east. Go all over the place with this message of loss, uh, for the lost. This message of forgiveness and hope and compassion. So I'm going to challenge you with three things. Three things. Number one, will you pray with me that God would use us individually and corporately to make an impact in the lives of the people around us? Will you pray? I was challenged this week at the conference I was at. Uh, one of the speakers said, uh, most of you have these, most of you have smartphones. And I have a smartphone. Most of you have smartphones. Most of those smartphones have a an app on there now that show you how much screen time, you, how much time you've been on that device that week. He said, compare your screen time to your prayer time for this week. How do those two measure up? And friend, I'm going to tell you, I was convicted. Will you pray with me? Put the phone down and pray with me that God would use us. Number two, will you repent of any known sin in your life, something that's hindering your walk with God, will you tell somebody about it? Let God do his work of cleaning that out so that you're walking in step with the Spirit. You're walking in obedience with Jesus Christ. And number three, will you consider who is one person, just one, who is one person this week that you could talk to about Jesus? Maybe it's a classmate of yours. Maybe it's somebody you work with. Maybe it's a family member. Who is one person that you can talk to with the goal of introducing them to this horn of salvation, this strength of salvation, this person in whom you love and you find your hope? Pray, repent, and go. Will you do those three? Will you try to do those three with me this morning? I want to pray for us. Uh, that we would do that, and then we're going to share communion together this morning uh, and celebrate uh, what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this prophecy that was recorded, not just for the people of that day, but for us as well, that we would be reminded that our horn of salvation, our, our Redeemer, the one who came to rescue us, has arrived on the world stage. And we, as 21st century believers, have the incredible opportunity to look back and to see how it all unfolded. We get to see the life of Jesus. We get to see the death and resurrection of Jesus. We get to see the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus. We get to see the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts. We get to see and understand the explanation of Jesus from all of the epistles. And we stand collectively with all the saints as we look forward to the fulfillment, the consummation of Jesus coming back again. Father, help us to both believe this message of the gospel and then to take it into a lost and dying world. Thank you that you are bringing people to us from all over the world, literally all over the world, coming right here to Sarasota. And they're our neighbors. And they're the parents of the kids that go to school with our kids. And they're and baseball teams, and Father, that we would be bold, that we would be unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
and that it would just pour out from us in everything that we do, that we would have the opportunity to tell others the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who died and rose on our behalf. Help us, Father, to do that for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.